Hello, and it's time for our listener feedback episode on the strange case of Carlos Allende. And we've got a number of things going on here, uh, not just some feedback from listeners, but some other contributions from listeners, and a little bit of a treat, if you can call it that, as we get to the end in the form of an interview or conversation between Gray Barker and Carlos Allende from 19. 19- 67. It's not the epic 90-minute one that's out there, but it is one that is out there. And thank you to listener Brian R. for pointing me in the direction of that when I had not been able to find anything like that. So cheers, Brian. Thanks a lot for that. We're going to start off not with some listener feedback, but a listener poem from listener Zachary. And uh, Zachary has a website full of uh, full of things that he included a link to that I will put on the uh, show notes. And this is uh, this is a good poet, poem, and he gave me permission to read it. Now, warning, I am not a trained poetry recitationist. I, I don't know if that's the right word. Um, bard? I don't know if that's a better word, maybe. But um, here we go. Let's try this. The men are from Mars. At least, that's what I wrote when behind bars. They said atom bombs couldn't do much more than harm, and that before nuclear holocaust, their red world had been nothing but farm. Of course, as you'll see, much as you might imagine you want to hear from the space people, you don't want to be me. Because there are no men from Mars. No men at all come from the stars, not from Venus, pleasant and perfect. Not from Jupiter, under holy masters elect. Trust me, or not, not my choice. Even behind bars, I do have a voice, not that I am a prisoner for any law broken. Though soon I imagine you will regret having let me spoken, for this cell here, dear listener, is of my own make. I have the truth you cannot shake. There are no men from Mars, no men from beyond the stars. Just silver threads that tug and pull. Men with funny names all, cold, apple. There are no men from Mars, no men from beyond the stars. Just lying truths spun as a web, and the flows of the mind which forever ebb. I liked that. Hope you did too. Okay, on to some listener questions about our Carlos Allende episode. And again, if as I'm recording this, your question had not reached me, then I will address it later on. So, first of all, Kyle, who's on the Chizo Media Patreon over at patreon.com slash Chizo Media, says, My questions for that episode. Now that we've established a precedent for a more liberal usage of the term deathbed confession, when do you plan on starting to issue your own? Probably by August of this year. I'm, I'm going to start planning my pre-deathbed confession. Hopefully that'll give me at least another 10 years or so. Kyle also asks, if you could, in fact, reanimate a dead UFO writer to have lunch with, who would it be? Don't say Barker. Ah, uh, shoot, I can't say Barker. Okay, um, I that's, a, that's an interesting, difficult question. And I think, oh boy, I'd have to say George Adamski, but only if I could somehow compel him to tell me the truth about things. That would be my sort of caveat on that. Otherwise, oh, dead UFO people. 
Well, just because I've been enmeshed in this topic for a while now, um, I think I think Morris K. Jessup would be interesting. I'd I'd like to hear what he has to say because on the one hand we have people saying that well Jessup was deeply involved in working on the Philadelphia experiment when they came to get him after they read his book, and other people like John Keel saying Jessup thought all of those annotations were were bunk and just kind of a waste of time. I would like to hear from him what he thought of those annotations and of the whole thing. I think that would be interesting. There's also, oh, just just some others. Truman Bethram. I'd like to talk to Truman Bethram. I would like to talk to um, Jim Mosley because I, I never got the chance to talk to him when he was alive. And I, I think if he had lived about five years longer or I'd been about five years older, we probably would have crossed paths. Um, we we knew enough people in common, at least I do now, that that would have been that would have been good. Um, yeah, so that's that's my list. Uh, Kirk also on the Patreon says I too was impressed by the grit and humanity of Ms. Dowers, as well as her mastery of prose, especially given her humble background. So, what's your personal opinion? Oh, this question. What's your personal opinion as to why the ONR employees and the Vero Manufacturing Company took the trouble to publish Jessup's book with Allende's annotations? An MJ-12-style effort to muddy ufological waters? A literary practical joke? Or could it be that a number of individuals at ONR took the peculiar ideas expressed in it seriously? After all, over the years, we have heard that there are strange pockets of people within the government and military that are into all sorts of strange stuff. I think a little bit of a practical joke and a little bit of some weirdos taking some of the ideas seriously. I think there are elements of um, elements of both there. Um, that's that's my opinion. It's somewhere between those two options. Red Pill Junkie commenting on the website says, "Great job on this one. Thank you." I could almost hear the cogs inside your head starting to screech by the end of the recording, getting too overwhelmed by the maniacal influence of Carlos Allen Allende. Allende was clearly a brilliant bamboozler who probably tried to bask in the questionable notoriety his sad little life ever managed to enjoy until the very end. But in truth, can we blame him for the way his tall tales have managed to endure and blossom for so many decades? All this kind of reinforces my suspicions that many things in the world of ufology, perhaps UFO themselves, are some sort of mimetic virus that spreads around from brain to brain. Maybe. I mean, that's I like that sort of sort of notion. I, w- I will say that, no, we, we cannot blame Allende for, for the way his things, uh, his ideas were used. Um, absolutely not. I'm not sure as I'd go as far as John Keel did in... Um, calling Allende the Philadelphia Experiment's greatest victim. I'm not sure I'd go that far, although it's, you know, it, it's sort of a, uh, a a case study in how, you know, your ideas can be used by all kinds of people in all sorts of ways for all kinds of profit that you don't necessarily get a uh, get to participate in. Um, but I, I do think, yeah, he's, no, the, especially the way it's gone, post 1989 which is what we're going to see in the the next and probably final installment final and a half installment of the uh the philadelphia experiment um saga here or the saga of the people who've been part of the philadelphia experiment and don't worry we're going to get back to uh to aliens um uh, uh, you know 
eventually actually in this next philadelphia experiment episode there are some aliens there as well so don't worry we're getting back to aliens but i think uh, next time when we get people like al Bielik and preston nichols and the whole montauk thing involved yeah that i mean it, it's it's a a splinter off of the philadelphia experiment and a, a a sort of retelling and retwisting of it that is uh, is at odds with Allende's account, and they, as we'll see, go out of their way to minimize Allende's contributions. And um, this didn't really come across well when I discussed the Dower's book, but uh, Allende and, and and Dower had a very low opinion of the the post Allende Philadelphia experiment discussion. Lester via email says, is the Philadelphia experiment as phony as Adamski's photographs? Yes. Yes, I think that's a, a good comparison. Uh, things can be debunked, you know, eight ways from Sunday, but there are going to be people who, who cling to that idea. Um, Lester also, in, in a separate email, talks about sort of Allende and, uh, and, and Jessup and says that, that both were apparently gifted individuals who couldn't turn their gifts into money, conventional careers, etc. Ayande should have been a pulp sci-fi author. Anyone could get a story into the pulp magazines of the 20s to 40s. By the 50s, he had to crank out paperback books, which took a lot more work. Absolutely. I, I think I think Ayande's stories were, were made for a 10,000-word Amazing Stories novella. I, I think that is absolutely uh, absolutely perfect and uh, and finally at least as of as of right now doc pinko on twitter he says i have the philadelphia experiment book but haven't read it i first heard about it thanks to the 1984 movie with that guy who played a high school kid on the greatest american hero which i also watched yes i'm a, a huge greatest american hero mark uh more aliens don't worry they're coming they're coming in conjunction with um the philadelphia experiment and montauk and all of its sort of adjuncts there. So thanks for that. Uh, thanks for that feedback. Thanks for that um, that stuff right there. Just a little glimpse before we get to the Gray Barker, um, Carlos Allende conversation that we're going to end this with as a little treat for you. Um, if that's the sort of thing you might define as a treat, I don't know. That's um, that's kind of iffy. But I do want to sort of say where we're going with this. Um, the next Philadelphia Experiment installment is going to be um, uh, Albulek and the Montauk stuff. And I am going to I'm, I'm going to place some limits on myself with the Montauk stuff because the Montauk Project stuff is its own podcast series, not even a, a bunch of episodes. It's its own podcast series. And there are a lot of sort of spinoffs even of that. There are some Philadelphia experiment things from earlier that I did not get to because books had not reached me yet. So I think after the the Bielek Montauk episode, there's going to be a final wrap-up. And that might be in the, the post um, the, the listener post thing, or it might be its own episode. I'm not sure. Um, it's my show. I can go ahead and not be sure. But um, things like Brad Steiger's 1968 book on the Allende letters, the novel Thin Air, which was loosely based on the Philadelphia experiment ideas. Um, there are some 
spin-offs of the Montauk thing that get into a little more alien stuff and some really weird stuff. Uh, books by a guy named Stuart Swerdlow, for example. We'll look at a few of those. There is a book by Alexandra Bruce that ties in the Philadelphia experiment with the death of Phil Schneider, who is connected to the underground Dulcie base. That's a real thing, folks. So there's there's a lot here. I, I'm, I'm trying to get as much of this sort of out of the way so I never have to deal with this topic again. I, uh, I don't think I've bought this many books for an episode or series of episodes ever. It's pretty amazing. So that's all uh, that's all I have for right now. Let's um, let's segue to 1967 and Gray Barker talking to Carlos Allende. Hello to my friends and correspondents everywhere. This is Gray Barker and this tape is being made available as a part of the dissemination my research into the mysteries of the Allende letters, the annotated edition of the case for the UFO, the apparent suicide of Dr. M.K. Jessup in 1959, and other matters that still remain mysteries and are of great interest to serious students of ufology. Now, this recording is just being made informally. It's not being read or it's just from a few notes, so uh, I hope you will uh, pardon the way it's made. But it's, it's just as if I would be sitting here talking to you about this, and that's how I would like to proceed. Some of you uh, listening to this tape has already read the annotated edition of the case for the UFO by Dr. M.K. Jessup, the uh, facsimile edition that I reprinted and have been distributing for some years now. Those of you who have read this, I'm sure this tape will mean a great deal more to you uh, than those who haven't. And to those who are thoroughly familiar with Jessup Allende, uh, the alleged disappearing ship, etc., I, I hope that you will uh, pardon me while I just sketch out some things briefly in case the person listening to this tape is not too familiar with these things. Uh, the mystery of the annotated edition, I suppose, started back in 1955 when Bantam Books published a paperback of Dr. Jessup's book, The Case for the UFO. Well, that wasn't too mysterious, but it was when a copy of this book was mailed into Washington to the Office of Naval Research. There was a lot of peculiar scribbling in this book in uh, three shades of blue ink evidently written by three different mysterious people, uh, calling themselves Mr. A, Mr. B, and Gemini. These annotations were almost alien in their character, very, very strange. And we don't know how it came about, but for some reason, uh, possibly because of his allusions to a secret naval experiment, this book surfaced in a very peculiar edition sometime afterward. A company in Garland, Texas, named the Vero Manufacturing Company, was given this annotated edition by the military, and in the office of this uh, firm, which manufactured uh, electronics gear for the military, it was laboriously typed out on offset stencils, and the annotations that were written in were printed in a different color of ink. 
If you've seen the annotated edition, you know what I mean. Uh, then, a limited number of copies of these were distributed. Also, in this book were reproduced uh, some very strange letters that Jessup had received from uh, a Carl M. Allen or a Carlos Miguel Allende, uh, previous to the annotations being sent in. The most interesting thing about these letters were that they described an experiment which allegedly took place at sea and uh, during which a destroyer with all its crew uh, became invisible due to the utilizing of the principle of principles of Einstein's unified field theory. According to these letters, uh, the experiment uh, went wrong in, in some ways. Some of the crew froze or were unable to recover from the invisibility imposed with the strange field and they could be brought back by a strange laying on of hand ceremony by crew members or by sophisticated equipment they're hurriedly readied after the experiment went awry. We don't have time to go into all that now, but if you have read the letters, you will know what we're talking about. For years, uh, people had heard about copies of, these, of this book, but had never seen one. Uh, after I obtained a copy and reprinted it, however, it's uh, more generally known. And a great many uh, questions begin to surface. For one thing, who was Carlos Miguel Allende? Did he actually exist? Was he one of the people who annotated the uh, strange uh, copy of the paperback sent into Washington? Well, no one could prove anything because no one could locate Allende. And the mystery uh, just went along. However, uh, during the last couple of years, Allende, or at least a man claiming to be a Yendi, suddenly surfaced and began to uh, show up and talk to people and write letters to people. Uh, finally, I was able to have a meeting with a Yendi in the company of fellow researcher James W. Mosley, and we asked him some questions, and he consented that we record his answers on a tape. Uh, one of the amazing uh, revelations that came from Allende was that not only did he write the letters, but that he did the complete annotations, so he claimed, by being able to change his handwriting and to write in three different handwriting styles. I don't know if this proves that this man that we're going to hear is the actual Allende. The mystery of that and the research that's been done would take up far too much time. But anyhow, here for, your, for you to use your own judgment on is that interview with Allende. So whether there is a, an Allende or whether Allende has disappeared. And well, I would like for you to identify yourself on the tape so that people can be sure that they are indeed hearing Allende. My name is Senor Foreman, Carlos Miguel Allende Allende. The ciudad Guadalajara, Estado de Jalisco, México, señor. A sus órdenes y servicios. Excellent. Now, uh, Allende has been associated in the minds of a great many ufologists as the author of certain annotations on the, on the case, in the book The Case for the UFO. Would you identify yourself as the author of those annotations? I can, and I will. See here, on my right, 
long finger. Yes. It is scarred, as you two witnesses here. Uh, James? Yes. Morley? Mosley. Mosley. And uh, Ray Barker? Yes. You two witness this finger and can see. It is scarred. Yes. And the top of it is once off and the nail has been smashed. And so, evidently, I could not use that finger, the index finger, to write with in a normal fashion. This finger was done and obtained and smashed during a shipwreck of the SS Byron Duncan, uh, right below the Sand Island Lighthouse in March the 6th of 1946. And uh, being as this finger was in such bad condition, the index finger, of course, as you see, is functional. And as this long finger rests on the surface of the table or desk of which I will be writing, it obviously became necessary for me to shift the thing, my, the position of my pen, so that uh, that finger would not, as tender and as painful as it was, uh, not rest on that surface, but be lifted above the surface slightly. So I shifted my pen, and so that it would be between the long finger and the index finger, and supported slightly with my thumb. In this fashion, I learned to write in three different handwritings. And, of course, to emphasize that this is three different handwritings using different forms of, of uh, capital and small letters, and uh, using this form of handwriting as well as the normal form of handwriting, I was able to, with the difference in penmanship, the difference in color, ink colors, to dramatize a deliberately uh, deliberately dramatized what I wrote in those annotations so as to cause science through its tender pride to feel woefully behind the times and to be urged and spurred on into greater uh, efforts to advance and to raise its level of knowledge which they did during uh, the IGY years, which uh, followed only a couple of years after I wrote my annotations. And I discovered only a, a few years or so ago from uh, members of the academic community with which I regularly and often associate with this, this, these IGY years were caused, mostly and mainly caused, spurred on by those annotations that I wrote claiming such superior knowledge. Well, how did the academic and scientific community become aware of these annotations? Uh, how, how did they find out about them? We must face the fact that in the prologue of, or the foreword of uh, the Navy Bureau of Research and Development, uh, edition, the so-called Anavaro edition of the annotated uh, Joseph book, annotated by myself. I'm getting at is to uh, get you to tell us how that book was distributed and how oh, the scientists yes. became no, came to know about it. Yes. Well, uh, in the front of that book, uh, they say that there were, you know, in the letters to Jessup and to myself also. The Navy says that there, these books 
reprints, uh, the naval reprint was made for the scientists of uh, the old Bureau of Naval Research and Development and for colleagues, that is, fellow professors, also interested in force field uh, functions, uh, dynamics, and uh, force fields even as uh, physics. How many copies of this uh, book was distributed? As well as to France, as well as to France, to who, meaning uh, industrial industries and universities who were contracted to the old Bureau of Naval Research and Development. All right. Uh, all of these uh, many people of the French, the uh, colleagues outside of, of the old Bureau of Research and Development, as well as all of the scientists inside of the Bureau of Research and Development, received by the Navy's own words, by what they wrote in that prologue, uh, the forward to the book, copies of this book. They all received this. And this, obviously, logically, considering that the Navy then employed well over uh, 50 uh, scientists uh, in there, uh, a big part, it was well over 30 scientists, physicists, physical scientists, at the Bureau of Naval Research and Development uh, facilities, they had to print more than 25 because there were more than 30 in the ONR alone. So logic informs you and all who thinking people that not only were there more than 25 because they printed them for one copy for each physical scientist there and there were more than 30. So, fast forward, the colleagues outside of what is now called the ONR, the Office of Naval Research, since it changed its name from Bureau of Naval Research and Development to ONR. Not only for colleagues outside, but also for friends, that is, people, uh, universities and companies, even corporations, that were contracted to the old Bureau of Naval Research and Development Science establishment means that there were a colossally larger number than 25. Would you say 100 copies? No, I would not say 100 copies. I say more. I will tell you what. The president, uh, Austin V. Stanton, of Vero Manufacturing Company, told me about a decade, let's see, uh, 14 to 15 years ago, while he was still then president and at our first meeting, he said, we printed 116 copies. I received two. Jesup received three. I destroyed my first copy because it was uh, then and still possibly is today some of the world's most dangerous literature, the only scientists specializing in force field activity. There were logically at least 116, a minimum of 116. However, I later discovered that there were additional 25, big part, 25 
that were printed for the Office of Naval Research many years after the old Bureau of Naval Research and Development had printed the first 116. Therefore, the naval officer who swore, he took on oath on his word of honor as a gentleman and an officer and an afterwards trained man who swore to Charles Burridge that the experimenting in invisibility, that is the absolute camouflage, is still going on. And that officer was telling the logical truth. And therefore, when ONR says there were only 25 copies printed for ONR, it is telling the literal truth. But it is not mentioning the simple fact that for the old Bureau of Naval Research and Development Scientists, the self-same men, but under a different name, the self-same scientists, just having a different name, now called the ONR. They're not mentioning that fact because the combined number would be more than 125 and would be implicative of the simple fact that research in this area of science is still going on, especially since 3 July ago, about 25 months ago, during the Soyuz-Apollo uh, mission, when an invisible star was found radiating in the 390 Angstrom region of the ultraviolet, and having such strong force field uh, condensers the density that it proved my own statements of the past quarter of a century or more that invisibility can be achieved by using force fields and knowledge from Einstein's second, repeat, second unified field theory as well as force fields and unified and ultraviolet uh, light. My statement that this can be done, invisibility achieved through UV light and force fields, is proven to be true by the discovery of that star. There is no reason, therefore, for me to remain hidden away in old Mexico anymore. I come forth and rise above the surface and present myself to the public for this reason, because I want the public to know there really is a great benefit to be achieved from force fields research and to not condemn the Navy for uh, trying to protect their secrets as even companies and corporations even your own selves have your own personal secrets that you too also protect why condemn someone else for having and protecting their secrets likewise in the same a similar manner I'd like to ask a question now where is my name uh, Yende, right, uh, Yende, Mr. Yende, uh, there is talk that you saw a ship disappear during an experiment, which I believe some people have referred to as the Philadelphia experiment, uh -huh. and that you were an actual witness to that. I wonder if you would confirm that, and if you can confirm it, if you could describe the incident for us. I would like to say, here and now, 
is anything and everything that I and only I say by myself alone will be regarded always and forever and forever by the scientific and academic community as merely nothing more than pure hearsay. It has never been validated, confirmed, verified, nor corroborated, and that nobody, not one of you so-called scientists in this pseudoscience of ufology has even lifted a little finger to attempt to, to confirm, corroborate, and verify, and validate what I have been saying for almost a quarter of a century in print. You accept my word alone? What am I? A fountain of wisdom? An authority? Let us face the simple fact. What I tell you is yes, it's true. But you're going to be laughed at forever unless you yourselves go and do and do the research that logically needs to be done to verify, confirm, and corroborate and validate the statements that I make. I know that you are thusly caused to doubt what I have said. I want you to doubt, and I want you to doubt enough so as go ahead and see for yourselves whether or not what I have been saying for nearly a quarter of a century is so or not so. I say again, in my old age, in the 53rd year of my life, weak, emaciated, sick, and perhaps quite probably not too long to live, I may die soon from these sicknesses that I have. I say, yes, I saw the D-173 become invisible right before my eyes, right before my eyes. But I am not the only witness. And you intelligent people, you brilliant geniuses, never thought that there would be other witnesses in a whole convoy full of 107 or more ships. Right over my head in the gun top, just immediately behind my head, were Navy, I repeat, Navy gunners from the armed guards who sailed on the same ships with us. There were Army personnel aboard that ship, too. There were witnesses who witnessed this. Same thing. They saw it the same time I did at approximately 5.05 in the afternoon on a nice, clear, sunshiny day. Beautiful, lovely day. Not a cloud to speak of in the sky. Only usually a few clouds are naturally small clouds. The ship in front of us you travel in convoy, each ship must be 500 feet apart from the other ship. The stern must be 500 feet from the bow of the ship behind it, and vice versa. No sailors on the ship in front of us, whatever the name of that ship was. I saw them watching, watching with their eyes, 
the same thing that I saw occurring before my eyes to the DE-173 as it became invisible within that five minutes period of time. I am not the only witness in the world. Good Christ, man, go find those other witnesses. Find the name of that convoy. Find the names of the ships in the convoy. Then get a list of all the crew members. And to do this, you must get first, I repeat, first, the ship's articles. It is a pink piece of paper, pasteboard. It has the names of all the ship's crew members, of the merchant ship's crew members. And then get the ship's log in which the names and addresses of those people, those crew members that were on my ship, the SS Andrew Furiseth, are listed. Those addresses of all of the crew members. I mean all of them. Then go into the Navy records and find out for voyage number three that began on the October the 18th, 1943, from the Norfolk Hampton Roads shipping area around there. Find the Navy records for the Navy names and home addresses, repeat, home addresses, of the Navy armed guard gunner, gunnery personnel that were on that ship the SS Andrew Furiseth, and also witnessed this. Find the plot showing the position of each ship in that convoy. And find the position of the SS Andrew Furiseth as we crossed eastward across the Atlantic after that great hurricane. And find the name of the ship in front of the SS Andrew Furiseth, and there on that ship, you will find many other witnesses also. And the ship immediately to the port side, the two ships immediately to the port side, in the other lane of ships, the other lane of ships, you will get the names and addresses of the merchants and naval personnel aboard that ship, as well as the Army supercargo officer that always traveled on every merchant ship. It's his name, too. And then the other Army personnel being transported, such as we had on SS Andrew Furiseth. We had Army personnel being taken to war. He had their names, too. Collect all, I repeat, all of these witnesses. Don't look at me as if I am a fountain of wisdom, an authority to <coughs> be uh, accepted by all of science. Let us face the simple fact. Science regards my statements uh, until two uh, years ago, during the Soyuz July, uh, Soyuz Apollo mission, rocket mission, space mission, when they discovered the invisible star start. Until then, science regarded any statement that I made as absolutely ridiculous, and I repeat, ludicrously ridiculous.
Poppycock. Absurd. Preposterous. Let us face the simple fact that therefore science still is imbued and suffused, impregnated with the idea that anything any ufologist says is therefore a lot of Tommy rot. You must do this research or you fail yourselves and make yourselves look stupidly ridiculous as well as you fail to validate and the science of ufology into a real science instead of the pseudoscience it now is. That concludes the tape, Allende Speaks. For a complete list of tapes, write to Saucerian Press Incorporated, Box 2228, Clarksburg, West Virginia, 26301. Allende has the greatest, creepiest, weirdest voice ever. Thanks a lot for listening, and uh, we'll talk to you later.